How are you all today? Woohoo! A little cooler today. That's that's nice. Well, it's good to see you all. I want you um, just to start this morning by imagining waking up on your wedding day. Now, maybe you have or have not been married, so some of you can use your memory, some of you just use your imagination. But you wake up on the morning, the day of your wedding, what do you do to get ready? <laughs> That's what, coffee, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Everything, It's a, especially if you're a bride, it seems like a mad scramble, doesn't it? Yeah, okay, how about this one? Imagine it's, you wake up and it's the day you're getting adopted. Some of you don't have to imagine that. Some of you know what that's like. What do you do to get ready? Do you get dressed up before you go down to the courthouse to sign the papers and and all that? Pray. Mm-hmm. I imagine that just about everyone on the day of their wedding or the day of their adoption washes. You take a shower or a bath or you clean yourself up. You do not go all dirty and sweaty because it's a big day. It's a big day. And the same is true for the day that you join and enter into a personal relationship with God. It's a big day that requires washing. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. All right, so I know you guys all think I drink coffee. I don't. I drink tea. And right now my tea bag is in there blocking my tea from getting out, so that's not going to be very helpful to me. (laughs) Things that I don't think about before I come up on stage. Okay, so the Israelites, they have been slaves in Egypt. And um, many of them didn't really know God that well. Many of them were actually worshiping Egyptian gods. But as they became more and more oppressed and enslaved over time, they remembered that their ancestor Abraham had a personal relationship with the Creator. And they began to cry out to him. And the God of Abraham showed up big time. He sent Moses. He did a lot of miracles with Moses. He led them through the Red Sea into freedom. And then he began leading them through the desert to a promised land that he would give them as a home. And they've been traveling through the desert. He's been guiding them by a cloud during the day that gives them shade from the heat. And then by a pillar of fire at night that gives them warmth and light. And it's been about three months now. So they've been getting to know each other for three months. And they've been seeing how God provides for them. He's rained down manna from heaven so they can eat. 
And they have finally come to Mount Sinai. And it is a big day. Because it's the day God proposes to them. Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And so then Moses goes and he gives the words to the leaders of the Israelites. And they all respond together. We will do everything the Lord has said. And so Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. This is cute. This is like in sixth grade when you, you like someone and you tell your buddy, like, to take this note to them, right? Do you like me? Check the box. Yes or no. This is, this is what's happening here. And so Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And then Moses, or the Lord tells him, great, and this is what they need to do. Verse 10, I'm, I'm skipping a little bit ahead. Verse 10, and the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. That day would be their wedding day. And that's basically what takes place. They prepare, they wash And then God comes down on Mount Sinai and they exchange vows. Moses reads the Ten Commandments. Those are like the Israelites' vows to the Lord. And they say, we agree or we do. And then the Lord gives his vows to them and he makes promises to them about how he's going to bring them into this land and he'll bless them and prosper them. And so this goes on. Um, through chapter 23, and then at the beginning of chapter 24, the covenant is confirmed, and the ceremony ends. And so then God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai so he can give him the blueprints for the house he's going to live in with his new bride. That's essentially what happens. Moses comes up, and God gives him blueprints for a tabernacle. A tabernacle is just a a really fancy church tent. And, and God says, I want to live among my people. He wants to live with his bride. And so he gives Moses the blueprints for this place where he will live among his people. And it takes about 40 days. And after 40 days, Moses comes back down the mountain and the people have already broken the covenant. Amen. They're already worshiping an idol, a a golden calf. And this scenario will repeat itself again and again throughout Scripture, where the people will promise, yes, Lord, we will worship only you. You will be our God. We will be your people. And then they start worshiping the gods of their neighbors. And then they become oppressed by their neighbors 
of the very gods that they were worshiping. And so then they'll be like, God, save us. And so he comes and saves us. And they're like, thank you. You know, (laughs) it takes about one generation in most cases, sometimes two, but it happens. And this just happens again and again for about a thousand years of history. And God finally decides he's had enough. And he declares a divorce. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Over and over, whenever they would start worshiping other gods, God would send a prophet to them that would say, Thus saith the Lord. Stop cheating on me. (laughs) And that's why he said, stop, you're cheating on me. You're committing adultery. You're prostituting yourself with these other gods. Don't you know they only hurt you? They only take advantage of you. I'm your one true husband who loves you and provides for you. Come back to me. God considered it adultery. And finally, after a thousand years, he declared a divorce. Not because he had left the Israelites, but because they had left and been faithless. Because they had been unfaithful to him. However, through Jeremiah, he also gives hope. He also promises a day will come when he will make a new covenant with them. This is from chapter 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So God and his people got a divorce because of a thousand years of unfaithfulness. But he said, there will come a time where I will make a new covenant with them, and it's going to be better. Because this time I'm not going to give them my good law on tablets of stone. I'm actually going to write it in their minds and on their hearts. How is he going to do that? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. Through other prophets, God declares that he will send a promised one or Messiah. Messiah only means promised one. That he's going to send a promised Savior, even greater than Moses, who's who is going to lead people to freedom from their sins. They will be cleansed from their sins and the Holy Spirit will actually be able to dwell in them. So God will no longer dwell among his people in a church, a tabernacle, a temple. Rather, he will dwell in them. First Corinthians says, Do you not know? Your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit 
who is in you, who you have received from God. That is a new plan. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. So the Israelites wait. They're invaded, oppressed by foreign nations, one empire after another. And the longer they're in oppression, the more they realize these other gods do not bring freedom. And the more they realize that God's law and rule is good. His law that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is good. His law that told them, do not work every day. Take one day of rest every week. That's good. Don't kill each other. Don't steal or lie to each other. God's law is good. And they begin to yearn for the day where once again they will live by God's law, be under his rule, and be his kingdom. They're longing for that day. 400 years goes by. And suddenly, after 400 years, suddenly, John the Baptist starts declaring, It's time! It's time! The promised one is coming. We need to prepare the way for him. The new covenant is going to happen. We're going to be the kingdom of God. It's coming. we got to get ready. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel. Gospel just means good news. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet... I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We've discussed this before. Repentance means turning. So you're turning from your sin and going in a new direction. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, who... The throng of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, this begs the question, why did the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus at his baptism? 
Was not Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit before his baptism? Well, Scripture gives us at least one definitive answer and maybe more for this question. We know that one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit came down visibly in the form of a dove or something that looked kind of like a dove onto Jesus was to be a sign to John the Baptist and others that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. The story of Jesus is recorded in three books in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them talk about Jesus' baptism. John gives these extra details um, after the baptism. It says, then John, meaning John the Baptist, gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, meaning I did not know who was going to be the Son of God, the promised one who's coming. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus visibly in a form of a dove was meant to be a public sign that he in fact was the Son of God. We also see from Scripture that there are times when the Holy Spirit is more powerfully present in a believer's life than at other times. There are many cases in the Scripture where it says things like, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, and then Peter gives this great sermon, and a bunch of people get saved. Or Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, and he sees this vision from heaven. There's lots of times that Scripture says things like that, where it seems like they become extra empowered by the Holy Spirit. They're full of the Holy Spirit, and they can do things they could not do before. In this case, um, Mark doesn't say full of the Holy Spirit, but Matthew does, that Jesus was baptized and became full of the Holy Spirit. And now he's empowered, and he goes into the desert, and he fasts for 40 days in the desert. He did that because he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was empowered to. And then he, after that time, well, he, first of all, he doesn't give in to the Satan's temptation. He overcomes, right? And then immediately from that, he begins his ministry. He begins preaching and healing. He does his first miracle of multiplying the water into wine. So the, the Holy Spirit does empower him at this point for his ministry. It seems that the Holy Spirit can fill believers to varying degrees. You have probably felt this at times yourself. You've experienced it where there are times where you can just feel the Holy Spirit's presence more tangibly than at other times. There are also times that we can squash the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 warns us, I'm sorry, 5.19 warns us, do not quench the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.30, it tells us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. There are times, especially when we flirt with sin, that we can grieve or kind of quench the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. God doesn't force His presence on us. 
He wants a partnership with us. And so there are things that we can do that invite more of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. And there are things that we can do that squash the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Baptism is one of the things we do that invites the Holy Spirit to be more powerfully present in our lives. We see it in the example of Jesus and we see it in scripture as it describes what baptism is. Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He links the repentance, the turning from sin, and the act of being baptized with being saved and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, well, I thought all I had to do to be saved was to say this little prayer where I asked Jesus into my heart. It's true that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8 says that we are saved by grace, by a free gift of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. And this is not of ourselves. It's not a work that we do so that no one can boast. The faith that we have in Jesus, that is a gift from God. I know there are some that struggle with faith. And they're like, ah, this sounds good, but I don't know. And do I really believe or what? If you struggle with faith, Just ask God for the gift of faith. It's a free gift. We're saved by faith in Christ Jesus. However, James tells us in the Bible that faith without action is dead. It's dead. It's meaningless. Jesus says we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, our physical strength. We cannot just mentally consent to being saved. We cannot just mentally consent to faith. We have to step into faith with all of our being. Our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, our physical body. And so... Our faith must be accompanied by some action to be alive. The Bible lists two actions specifically that we can take to exhibit faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 10:19 says, "If you declare with your mouth, notice this is an action you're doing with your body. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved." This is where we get the idea of that prayer that we say out loud. Peter says, repent, turn from your sins. And so we say, God, we we confess that we're sinners. We believe that Jesus Christ is your son and that you raised him from the dead. And we accept your gift of salvation. Lord Jesus, come into our hearts. That kind of prayer, that kind of confession with our mouth saves us. The other outward action the Bible overwhelmingly points to, though, is baptism. 1 Peter 
3, 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we are baptized, it's not just to remove dirt from our bodies. It's asking God to wash our conscience clean and give us new life in the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of righteous good things that we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to baptism. That in baptism, the Holy Spirit actually washes our conscience clean. And he gives us new life. He begins that writing of God's law on our minds and our hearts. Saying a prayer to confess faith in Jesus does not eliminate the need to be baptized. The two are meant to go together. In your Bibles, in the New Testament, every person who hears the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection and they believe are almost immediately baptized. There are no examples of someone believing in Jesus' death and resurrection and then saying, no, I don't want to be baptized. Or, well, let me see if this faith sticks and if it works and then I'll get baptized later on. That's not a thing in the Bible. It's it's not like like we decide to move in with Jesus and, and live with him for a while to see if we're compatible and then get married. That That's not a thing that comes from Scripture. When people believe in Jesus, you seal that commitment with the covenant ceremony of baptism. Baptism is a covenant with God where we bring our whole self not just our minds, just not thinking in our head, but our whole selves to profess faith in Jesus. And we identify our whole body with Jesus. This is actually where that term Christian comes from. It, it just means little Christs. So in, baptize, in baptism, we're identifying our whole body to be little Christs. Look at this, Romans 6, 3 through 4. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus We're baptized into his death. When we go down in the water, we're identifying with his death when he went down into the grave. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In that order, just in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And baptized. In baptism, our whole body, our whole being is identifying with Jesus' death, that we too, we want to die to our old way of life, and we are being raised to new life just like he was raised to new life. Colossians 2.12 Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. You cannot be raised with Christ unless you've been buried with Christ, people. You have to be buried and die to the old to be raised in the new with Christ through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Not only does baptism identify us with Christ, it also identifies us as God's child. Galatians 3.26 
So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Why? How? How do you become children of God through faith? For you were, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Jesus Christ is God's son. And when we're baptized, we clothe ourselves, we identify with him. And and God the Father says, yep, that's one of my kids. We get adopted into God's family. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We gain these siblings from all over the world who are also are, become our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all one in Christ Jesus. The next verse, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So as we're adopted into God's family, then we also become heirs where we inherit all the promises of God and of his kingdom. So where the first covenant between God and people at Mount Sinai looked like a wedding, the new covenant of baptism looks like an adoption. It looks like an adoption ceremony. We identify ourselves with Christ. God recognizes us as his children. We become heirs of all his promises. And we gain these brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Parents, I just want to speak to you for a minute. Because there's a tendency of parents to withhold their children from being baptized. If your child is old enough to understand that Jesus is God's son who died for them and rose again so that they can live again in heaven, if they understand that, if they accept that, if they've asked Jesus into their heart, then there is no reason to let them not be baptized. If your child has faith in Jesus, let them profess their faith with their whole being and reap all the rewards of being baptized. You can't make that decision for them. They have to come to that understanding and desire themselves. But don't withhold them from it once they do. All right, so in baptism, we identify with Christ. He recognizes us as children. He adopts us. We become heirs and we gain siblings. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says this. This is our last one I'm going to leave you with on baptism today. For we were all baptized by one Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active in baptism. It is not just this symbolic thing we do that has no power. The Holy Spirit is active in baptism. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free... We were all given one spirit to drink. In baptism, baptism that is accompanied by faith, because just like faith without action is dead, any action without faith is also dead. You you can't get baptized because someone else wants you to or because you're not sure God exists, but just in case hell is a real thing, you, you you have a backup plan. You have to have faith. The faith and action work together. But in true baptism, 
The person who has faith identifies with Jesus' death. You're going down in the water to die to the old way of life. Identifying with him in the grave. And by the power of the Spirit, you are raised. Your conscience is washed clean. And you receive new life through the Holy Spirit. And God identifies you as his child. And you are made one with all your brothers and sisters around the world. And become an heir to all of God's blessings and promises. It is a big day. It's a big day. And next week we have two people who are getting baptized. I'm really excited about that. Um, If it's good weather, we're going to have it right out here. We'll do our worship service out here and have some baptisms. And then we'll come in here um, to eat and have our potluck. And all that, if it's bad weather, we'll just be in here the whole time. Um, but I hope you can come. If you have been thinking or wondering if you should get baptized, I encourage you to do so. Parents, if you have a child who's professed faith in Jesus Christ, talk to them about baptism. And see if it's something they want to do. It's a big day. It's a big day. And covenants are not one-sided. Covenants are two-sided. In baptism, we identify with Christ and who we want to be. But it's the Holy Spirit who does the miraculous work in us. We don't do the work in ourselves. So you don't have to wait until you know everything about the Bible or you can live it out perfectly. You express your desire in baptism and you trust the Holy Spirit to complete the covenant. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just um, reminded of when I was eight years old. And I stood on the shore of a pond. It seemed like a lake, but it was probably just a little muddy pond, actually. And I told my church that I love Jesus and I want to follow him the rest of my life. And as an eight-year-old, I had no power and ability to keep that commitment but you did and you baptized me and you accepted me into your family and you've held on to me ever since and i thank you for that i thank you for how you have held on to each one who has trusted you in baptism And God, I pray that you will just pour out your free gift of grace, of faith in Jesus Christ abundantly. And more and more people will be called and will seek you in baptism, Lord. May we rejoice to see more and more baptized into your family. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.